Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Halloween is synonymous with costumes, candy, scary movies, and haunted house attractions, at least here in the US. Scary can be fun, especially when it's all pretend. Unfortunately, in this case, three young women were forced into an all too real slasher film of their nightmares one Halloween night, but only one would make it out alive. On Halloween night of 2004, roommates Lauren Menza, Adrian and Sonia, and Leslie Mazzara handed out candy to trick-or-treaters in their quiet upper-middle-class neighborhood in Napa, California. As the knocking of trick-or-treaters faded out, the women made their way to bed around 11 p.m. At 2 a.m., Lauren's dog let out a whining bark, but assuming it was just cats outside as usual, she settled her dog and tried to go back to sleep. Not long after that, she started to hear noises of someone walking around the house. Her first thought was that one of her roommates probably invited a boyfriend over, but then she heard a blood-curdling scream from upstairs. She quietly crept to the door of her bedroom and peeked out. She heard heavy footsteps thundering down the stairs right towards her, and she panicked. She grabbed her dog and ran out the back door into the backyard. Seeing the six-foot fence surrounding her, she was terrified that now she was trapped. She hid and silently watched as a dark figure dove out the open window at the front of the house and took off into the night. Bravely, Lauren went back inside the house and made her way up the now bloody stairs towards the cries for help coming from Adrian's room. When she got to the top of the stairs, she saw Leslie motionless in a pool of blood and Adrian crouched behind her bed, bleeding heavily from multiple stab wounds. Terrified, she ran back to her room, grabbed her phone, and ran out to her car in the driveway to call 911. She didn't want to leave Adrian, but she was so afraid someone might still be in the house or that he might come back. I'm not going to lie. This totally sounds like something I do. I'm going to run to safety, and in this case, it would be inside of a vehicle that moves if I have to get out of there. I totally understand needing to be there for your friend in need, but I also see what the intruder is capable of, and I have to get the hell out of there. Now, it would be different if it was my child, because my fear would be overcome by adrenaline. Very true. If I'm totally honest, my instinct would probably be to stay with the friend that is still alive and try to slow the bleeding, but you and Lauren probably have the smarter idea. (laughs) She also probably had horror movies on the mind, it being Halloween and all. Right. And honestly, we truly don't know what we would do in that situation unless we were in it. Totally. When police arrived, they found 25-year-old Leslie dead from multiple stab wounds and 26-year-old Adrian barely alive and fighting for her life. Sadly, Adrian died from her injuries at the hospital not much later. The bloody crime scene showed detectives exactly what had happened. The intruder had pried open the front window with a knife, and as he climbed through the window, a bundle of zip ties fell out of his pocket unnoticed. He made his way straight up the stairs and into Leslie's room. Police were unsure if Leslie was the intended target or if he attacked her first simply because hers was the first room at the top of the stairs. Regardless, she never saw it coming, with the first several stabs taking place while she was likely still asleep. The commotion woke up Adrian, who turned on a light and reached for her glasses. 
The intruder entered her room and attacked her next. Adrian put up one hell of a fight, and at one point the knife slipped and sliced the palm of the intruder's hand. He fled the way he had come back out the front window, leaving a trail of blood all the way down the stairs and on the siding on the front of the house. Investigators also found three cigarette butts, two in front of the house and one in the backyard. He had likely been watching the house for hours, waiting for everyone to go to sleep. Police collected 71 pieces of evidence to be tested by the lab. A bloody palm print on the outside wall of the house proved to be the killer's blood. They entered the DNA into the criminal database, but got absolutely nothing. Either this was his first crime, or he had at least never been caught. The local police called in the FBI and the state police for assistance. They were taking this murder very seriously. Even so, they had no suspect and no motive they could see. Lauren had no idea who could have done this. Nothing was stolen, and she didn't think either of her roommates had any serious enemies. You don't even have time to react. You're just in a daze at that point. I'm glad they fought back as much as they could because it ultimately would help solve this case. But I can't imagine waking up to something like that. I mean, you don't even have time to react. You're just in a daze at that point. You have to hope the adrenaline kicks in fast in that situation. But poor Leslie never had a chance. Yeah, she really didn't have a chance. Also, watching someone's house for hours in the front and backyard is insanely creepy. Why them, though? This is so random. Yeah, no one could think of anybody who would want to harm either of the girls. But as with all investigations, they began with those closest to the victims. Leslie was beautiful, kind, and fun. She was a former beauty queen, once winning Miss South Carolina, so you can imagine she had a lot of admirers. Her friends referred to her as a sparkler that everyone was drawn to. While looking into her past, police found a few intriguing suspects. One was a former college boyfriend who created a website dedicated entirely to Leslie after they broke up. They had only dated for a few months. Another was the dad of another former flame. Leslie was engaged to a guy back in South Carolina during her pageant days. Apparently, his father began calling her home quite frequently when he knew his son wouldn't be there. He'd call Leslie often enough that she began refusing to answer the phone, and in the end, it destroyed the relationship with her fiancé. It seemed like the father had quite an obsession with her. In fact, according to phone records, he called Leslie several times on the night of the murder. She moved to the other side of the country, and he still wouldn't leave her alone. Okay, hold up. Her ex's dad... Aside from that being extremely twisted as hell, she had a lot of stalkers. Restraining orders would be going up left and right. Absolutely. All of that is super creepy. The stalker dad especially gives me horror movie killer vibes for sure. Oh, big vibes. At this point, any of these weirdos could be coming after her. Investigators traveled to South Carolina personally to check out these leads, but they all had alibis and the DNA wasn't a match. With both the boyfriend from college and the fiancé and father not panning out, police turned to Adrian's personal life. Adrian was a loving, generous spirit who always wanted the best for everyone. She loved the outdoors and sports. She was strong and was always looking out for her sisters. According to friends, Adrian was funny, smart, and outgoing. She could be a little bossy, but she always had your best interests at heart. 
Adrienne was a civil engineer for the Napa Sanitation District. Her best friend, Lily Prudhomme, who worked with her as a contract supervisor, told police that Adrienne would often come to work crying, and being her friend, she would console her. Adrienne had a steady boyfriend that everyone had loved at first, but by the end of that relationship, Adrienne's friends could only see the negative side of him, so none of them had very many nice things to say about him. Upon searching his home, a knife was collected from his bedroom and blood samples were taken, along with his clothes and the sheets off his bed. Once again, though, he had an alibi and the DNA wasn't a match. Well, a shitty boyfriend doesn't necessarily mean he's capable of murder. He could just be shitty. (laughs) They were grasping at any suspect they could get at that point. Next, Sham is going to tell us how this monster was finally identified. Over the next 11 months, investigators interviewed more than 1,000 suspects, taking more than 200 DNA samples. With the help of the FBI, the suspect pools spanned across eight states, but all with no luck. Suspects included anyone connected to the women at all, boyfriends, family, ex-boyfriends, co-workers, friends, acquaintances, literally anyone. Finally, the lab tested the DNA found in the cigarettes found at the scene, and it was a match to the blood the killer had left behind. Investigators asked a DNA expert to analyze it to see if they could use it to identify any physical characteristics of the suspect they were looking for. They were able to determine the killer was a white man of primarily Northwestern European ancestry with light-colored hair and either blue or green eyes. Police released this information to the public, hoping someone would come forward with the information. They also released the information they had about the brand of cigarettes the killer smoked. They were able to determine that they were the brand Camel Turkish Gold, which were very new at the time and most stores hadn't started carrying them yet. Unknown to police, the killer who lived only two miles from the crime scene was watching the press release when he realized he had made too many mistakes. His description was now all over the news. I get that having his description out there like that could make someone super nervous. But white guy with light colored hair and either blue or green eyes? I know at least 10 people that fit that description off the top of my head. It's not super helpful, especially in a primarily white community like Napa. I mean, we live in the Pacific Northwest, so we walk outside, we bump into at least 20 of them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The brand of cigarettes is a good lead, though, especially if that brand wasn't super common at the time. At the same time, investigators went back to Lauren and asked her to provide a list of everyone she knows that smoked. After thinking for a minute, the very health-conscious woman told police she only knows one person who smokes. When Adrian was moving in, her friend Lily and Lily's fiancé at the time, Eric, helped move all of their furniture in boxes. Eric Koppel smoked, but Lauren couldn't be sure of the brand he favored. Before police had a chance to follow up on this lead, Eric walked into the Napa County Police Department and confessed to the murders. On September 27th of 2005, Eric sat down with the police and told him that he was friends with Adrian and he had murdered her and Leslie the previous Halloween. He refused to tell the police why he did it and claimed he didn't remember what he had done with the murder weapon. Police were skeptical about his confession being real. When asked why he was turning himself in, he told the police he figured since they had his DNA from the crime scene, they would have discovered him soon enough. One DNA test later, they confirmed he was a match for the killer, and Eric was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. Adrian's best friend's husband or boyfriend at the time or whatever 
How was he not already looked at? Apparently, he was overlooked in this investigation. Okay, why in the world would he do this? Is he just insane? Well, even though he refused to give his reasons, it wasn't hard to piece together what had happened that horrifying night. Eric and Lily were engaged to be married on November 1st of 2004 in Hawaii, but sometime before the wedding, Lily called it off. Apparently, Adrian and the other friends had been telling Lily she deserved better than Eric, and she had broken up with him because of that. On the night of the murder, Eric had gone to a Halloween party and ran into his ex, Lily. According to witnesses, they argued because Eric was insisting they set a new date for the called-off wedding, and Lily was demanding he leave her alone. After the party, Eric returned home drunk, and his anger and bitterness grew. He fumed about how Adrian had ruined his life and decided to take revenge. He lurked outside of Adrian's house, watching and smoking, while he waited for everyone to go to bed. Leslie's bedroom was the first room he came to, so he killed her first. Then he went across the hall to Adrian's bedroom and attacked her, but she fought back aggressively. He rushed out of the house and went straight home. He burned his clothes in a fire pit in his backyard and went to sleep. The next day, Lily called him crying that Adrian had been murdered. He went to Lily's house to console her, and that was the beginning of their reunited relationship. The following February, Lily and Eric got married and started their life together. They even asked Adrian's mother to be a special part of the wedding, where she delivered a speech in Adrian's honor. So some questioned that if it was all about his anger at Adrian, why kill Leslie while she slept in her bed? They suggested that maybe Leslie was the threat to his relationship with Lily if he hit on her and he was afraid she would tell Lily about it. It was all speculation, though. That's a possibility for sure, but the only person who knows that is Eric. But can we talk about how effed up it was that he stood there with no remorse while Adrian's mother gave a speech at his wedding? Right? He comforted Lily because her best friend died, and he stood there while Adrian's mom mourned her daughter's loss, all the while knowing he was the reason for their pain. He's a cold, heartless monster. Lily really didn't know this about her husband? Well, Lily claimed she never suspected Eric could have been the one who killed her best friend. Then he started acting strangely after the police released a description of the killer. A couple days after the press conference, Eric's parents received suicide notes in the mail from him. When they confronted him, he confessed to killing Adrian and Leslie. His parents and Lily convinced him to turn himself into the police and went with him to the station. Eric pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In court, Eric seemed to regret what he had done, saying, I'm a broken man. I cannot fathom an explanation for my sinful deeds. The terrible agony inflicted upon a great number of people, words evade me. End quote. He apologized to the families of the two women he had murdered as well. He then told the court, and I quote, I was going to end my life, but I didn't want to take the answers to my grave. End quote. Lily also spoke in court saying, and I quote, Adrian and I were good friends. Adrian's mother and I grieved together. Our bond was stressed when Eric confessed, but it was not broken. I know a gentler Eric. End quote. She spoke about the depression Eric suffered from and his alcoholism before saying, it sent Eric into a violent explosion, but he has paid his debt through Jesus Christ. In the days before he confessed, I knew something was bothering him. I told him, Eric, there is nothing in this world that you could do to make me love you less. Those words are just as true today as they were that afternoon. End quote. Nope. 
Maybe I'm a bad wife, but if my husband murdered you, Sham, or anyone I cared about, I would absolutely love him less. And Jesus can get in line for punishment because this monster is going to prison. Same. I didn't marry a murderer. At that point, I would be questioning who my husband was entirely. Same. This really wasn't that long ago. Where is everyone in this story? Eric resides in Pleasant Valley State Prison in Coalinga, California, where he belongs. Lily eventually divorced Eric and went on to receive a master's degree from the University of Edinburgh, where she focused her thesis on the topic of forgiveness. Leslie's mother, Reverend Kathy Harrington, and her two sons built a cottage in Leslie's memory at the Calvary Home for Children in Anderson, South Carolina. Adrian's mother, Arlene Allen, has discussed her grief in the media and hopes to keep her daughter's memory as she was when she was living and not have it overshadowed by her untimely end. All of their lives were irreparably changed because of one man's temper tantrum. It's so sad. And one friend just being a friend. I mean, this woman and her roommate were murdered over what? Giving another friend advice or maybe just agreeing with her that her boyfriend's utter trash? This is an extremely scary situation any of us can get put in. Absolutely. It makes me think back to when I used to give relationship advice often. I never considered that I could be putting myself in danger. It's so scary. What about Lauren, the roommate that survived? Lauren may have survived the attack that terrible Halloween night, but she's had to live with the trauma, fear, and survivor's guilt that comes along with such a traumatic experience. There is nothing she could have done to save the lives of her friends, but that knowledge likely won't save her from the nightmares she'll endure moving forward. I don't know if I could forgive someone who murdered my loved one let alone for the pathetic reasons this monster did. Leslie and Adrian were beautiful souls who brought life and love to those who knew them. They deserved the opportunity to chase their dreams, fall in love, and live their best lives. A selfish, entitled monster took that life away before it had barely even begun. I don't know if he deserves forgiveness, but either way, I hope Lauren and all of the loved ones of Leslie and Adrian find peace however they can. The National Organization for Victim Assistance, or NOVA, is working to support victims by promoting dignity and compassion for those harmed by crime and crisis. They advocate for victims by connecting them with services and resources and providing skill-based training to victims, advocates, and crisis responders. They also promote public policy initiatives that protect the rights of crime victims and serve as the national voice for victims. For more information, visit www.trinova.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Steph, what's our Halloween bonus conjure tip? Well, October 31st to November 1st is not only Halloween. It's also the pagan celebration of Samhain. It's a religious festival originating from an ancient Celtic spiritual tradition to welcome in the final harvest and usher in the dark half of the year. It's believed that the barriers between the physical world and the spirit world break down during Samhain, allowing more interaction between humans and spirits, gods, and elementals. To celebrate Samhain, you can participate in traditions such as dancing, feasting, hosting a bonfire, taking a nature walk, 
or building an altar to honor your ancestors. Jack-o'-lanterns began as an ancient way of scaring off unwelcome spirits and offerings of treats, apples, pumpkins, or other fall harvest items were left out to honor and appease gods, spirits, and fairies. We suggest you join in on the celebration this year. Yes, and remember most holidays come from somewhere or have a deeper meaning. We'll be back on Thanksgiving with another bonus episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.